American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias Through Latino History and Culture program, a national endowment for the humanities bridging cultures at community colleges project. We're switching a bit today, intentionally and sometimes unintentionally because of the deeper lineup. We're switching almost entirely to the East Coast today and talking particularly about two groups that are predominantly settled in the East Coast. But I think we want to introduce that by talking a little bit about immigration trends, right? And I know most of you know this, and it's uh, you know social science and many ways 101 about immigration. But when we look at the increase in the Latino population in the United States, we need to look at what's happened with respect to immigration in the last 50 years or so to understand why this growth is taking place. And so one of the things we're going to have here is that we are going to be talking a lot about contemporary, right? But if if I know what if I can anticipate what I want to talk about, I don't know what I'm. I think I'm what I'm going to talk about. Uh, we're going to also make the argument that although we're talking here about relatively recent groups in terms of their, uh, the bulk of their presence, so to speak, in the United States, right? That in reality, that presence of both groups is actually quite old as well, right? That is, that, that really, you know, it's been on for a long time. So I have this graph that, again, you're familiar with. This is US immigration overall. And you have here the old immigrants and the new immigrants, right? The first wave, right, that uh, we know brought primarily, not exclusively, but primarily a lot of the so-called white ethnics to the US, right? The European migration, the Ellis Island story, the Italians and the you know, Eastern European Jews and uh, you know, the Greeks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and Ukrainians and so forth uh, that came in. The high, as you can see, about 9 million in that decade around the first decade of the 20th century, the decline, the passage of the national origins quota, the passage of the national origins quota system, right, to uh, restrict immigration in 1924, the decline, the depression, right, the continuance of a system of restrictive immigration until the passage of the 1965 immigration law. And all of you are pretty familiar with this, which then leads to the second wave. One thing that's interesting about this, by the way, is that we talk about you know, the immigration phenomena now and so forth, it is not until about the 1990s that the levels of immigration equaled, right, the high point of the old immigration, right? Uh, and that was coming into a country that was much smaller. So you can see the impact, right, that immigration had then, certainly, as we talk now about the impact of immigration at that time. Here's, a, here's another graph that is also telling. Here are the two waves in a, you know, bar graph and the blue is Europe and Canada, right? And the red are all others, and those are predominantly Latin America and Asia, and you see the turnaround, right? That is, the two waves are not the same in terms of where people came from, right? So that this phenomena here, right, if you can see, again, the restart of that in the 1960s, you see the difference in the distribution of where people were coming from. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is the 1965 immigration law, which gave a priority, and on um, a family reunification, but also on occupational skills, let's say, and on the notion of usefulness to the US, et cetera, which brought in a lot of qualified personnel from, from Asia and Latin America. Uh, there is also, of course, the immigration of a lot of refugees and so forth that came outside of the regular immigration phenomenon, and there's also un undocumented migration, okay? So as a result of that, 
We can see, and by the way, this is a little graph that I did using the projections of race ethnic components of the U.S. population 2000 to 2050, right? And, you know, if you compare 2000 over here, where you're looking at about a 70% of the population of the United States being white, not Hispanic, right? And you start looking at what they're projecting for 2050, right, in terms of that same percent distribution where the white, not Hispanic population gets to be nearly 50%, but the Hispanic population increases significantly. And you see also the Asian population and how it increases significantly. And we're talking about, this is the kind of demographic that people have been talking about also electorally, right? The notion of, you know, when there was a talk about, you know, the election, the re-election particularly of Obama, the, the failure, for example, of Republicans to reject, to, to react to a new demographic, right, with respect to uh, race and ethnicity in this country, right? Uh, this is the decennial census count. I don't know why I don't have commas or why I have a period, but that's, you know, that's, you know, 50 million, 478. I, I did it in Latin America. European style. That's yeah, right, European style, America. right. 50 million. <laughs> but you see this increase, and then the reason I'm using these figures is um, um, that these are counts. These are actual counts uh, by the Census Bureau of the Hispanic and Latino population in the United States. And you see, again, this increase where the, the count in, back in 1970 was about 9 million or so. Uh, and we're now looking in the count of 2010, and that's already four years old. Right? We're looking at a population in excess of 50 million. Right? And percent, in terms of percent, right? here you see it, right? percent of the US total US population. So by 2010, for example, uh, and even before that, the Latino population had actually, in terms of percentage, had exceeded, for example, the African American population of the United States as percent of total U.S. population. So we're looking at this increase really, you know, uh, very uh, rapidly here. I did this uh, in terms of specific origin, because right, some of you may be wondering, what does Hispanic or Latino mean anyway? First of all, the Census Bureau doesn't use Latino at all, right? It's Hispanic. Uh, and the other thing is how we ask the information. Let's kind of get into that now, right, because that's, a, that's another question. But it is a question. It's a self-identifier, right? Self-identifier, is this person Hispanic? So. And, but they also ask specific origin and look, of course, that there's a runaway numbers in terms of the Mexican population, which is maybe a reason we've been doing so much West Coast stuff, right? Because uh, you know, it's easy for us on the East Coast sometimes to lose sight of the national perspective on these numbers, right? So since we can't really, since we can't really you know, see very this way, well, let's take the Mexicans out for a minute and just do it that way, this way, because it, uh, it changes our axis here on the, our vertical axis. And you see that the increases uh, here uh, um, that have been in all categories, uh, <clears throat> the Central American population, the reason this, these don't start until 1990 is because until 1990, the US Census did not ask specific origin. Okay? They just, they did ask Cuban, they asked Mexican, they asked Puerto Rican, and other. Right? So that's why the data for these other groups, from the census at least, does not start until 1990. Right? And you see here, for example, the growth. These are, you know, Central and South America are I'm putting together a lot of nationalities, right? But notice particularly the Dominican group as a single nationality group here, right? And of course, uh, the growth here of uh, the Central American population, right? Uh, let me just, I think the next one that I have is New York City. And the reason I wanted to show that in comparison, for example, for, to this one, is that, of course, the leading group in New York City has been Puerto Rican, which has declined over time. Right? For two reasons. Puerto Ricans that sometimes uh, do much better uh, move out of the city, right? Or they move to Orlando. 
why Orlando? I don't know. I've never been there. Okay. But uh, so you have this decline in the in the uh, Puerto Rican population. Uh, notice the Dominican population has come up to very rapidly to occupy a second spot. I have the South American population here, and of course the Central American population. But notice, notice, notice the Mexican population, right? If we look at where it was in 1980, right? We're now talking about an excess, and close now in 2014 to about 350, 350,000 enumerated Mexicans in New York City. Okay, so that's you know that's a significant decline. I, I would I would think I don't know if Professor Hernandez would agree with me, but I think probably that the Dominicans will overtake the Puerto Ricans in this decade. You think? Yeah. Her uh, <laughs> presentation is that right? Well, the Mexi Mexicans will not overtake the Dominicans. Okay. All right. That's All right. We'll, we'll see. Uh, and uh, so that was my that was my general presentation. Put this in context. So we're talking here about two, we're now going to move essentially to talk about two Eastern groups, if you will. Right. Uh, I'm going to talk about Cubans. Uh, I. The main, one of the reasons I'm talking about Cubans is because that's what I do. Okay, and that's, that's one reason. Right? <laughs> about Cubans. But secondly, historically, they're an important group, uh, especially in the uh, here in New York City. Right, historically, an important group. And secondly, as we'll see later, there is no better group to illustrate the relationship between foreign policy and immigration policy. Right, no better group than as a case study of the relationship between foreign policy and immigration policy. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so that's my, this is my uh, Cuban, so I'm, I'm gonna move to, I talk, call it a special relationship because in many ways we'll see as we go through these two centuries of Cuban migration to the United States that there's been in many ways, what has resulted is in a special relationship that has been between Cuba and the United States and sometimes consequently between Cuban Americans and the United States, right, that have been characterized. Those are actually the words of Lou Pettis, the historian at the University of North Carolina who wrote a book about that and called it a special relationship, right, uh, in terms of the Cuban-U.S. relationship. So, for example, um, my research, by the way, uh, what I've been doing in the past, I, most of my work, I'm a sociologist, most of my work has been on the contemporary Cuban experience in the US, but a few uh, years ago, I started uh, thinking I was a historian, and I think since a, lot of, since a lot of people have not worked on the Cuban presence in the United States, uh, in the United States in the 19th century, uh, with the exception of the cigar, uh, making communities of Florida and Tampa that have received quite a bit of attention. There hasn't been, I thought, enough attention paid to, to New York, the importance of New York community. So I, st I started a project a few years ago to, in fact, try to reconstruct that community. So a lot of what I'm saying has to do with Cubans in New York historically. Right? So I'm now going to deal, deal a little bit historically with this. Part of that special relationship that exists, and specifically with New York, is that if you see this early data that I have put together, a number of passengers arriving in New York from Cuban ports, and from Latin American Spanish ports, you see that in this early period, 1821 to 1850, the number of passenger ships, of passengers arriving, I should say, from New York, from Cuban ports, is far greater, right, than from all of Latin America and all of Spanish ports put together. And the explanation for that is a typical New York story and a typical Cuban story, right? New York stories usually start with a port, the port, right? And Cuban stories usually start with sugar. Right? And that's the combination that resulted in this. Right? Cuba had a sugar boom, right? starting in 1800, much later than most of the Caribbean and Latin America, and it resulted in the massive importation of slaves starting about 1790. 
which is where Cuba develops a very, very um, um, uh, extensive system of sugar production and becomes the world's largest sugar producer, especially after the fall right, of the production in San Domingue, right, which is, of course, Haiti, right, after the slavery battle. The uh, sugar prices take off. The Cuban Criollo aristocracy, that is the Cuban Criollo aristocracy, the Cubans who have money in Havana invest in the regions of the West to expand sugar production. The Spanish are not interested in sugar, right? They sell their sugar in New York, which by that time was the, the nation's, the United States' leading refinery, okay, refining center. Believe it or not, there were about 16 refineries in New York's sugar refineries I'm talking about sugar refineries in New York City by uh, 1800 or so. And so their sugar goes to New York, right? And it goes to New York, and so you start establishing this tremendous ties, right? Later on, you start having the importation of cigars. So the Cuba trade, by about 1810 or 1820, starts occupying the fourth or fifth place among all countries in the world in terms of sugar trade, of, of excuse me, of US trade, right? So that Cuba, if you still a Spanish colony now, 1820 or so, starts this tremendous you know, trade with the US. And the Cuban sugar producers, who are Cuban, by the way, the Spanish are largely engaged in a lot of commerce. The Cubans are the producers. Okay? The Cuban sugar producers start shipping a lot of their sugar to New York. In fact, most of their sugar to New York. There are counting houses that are all along South Street right? that, in fact, sell this sugar for them on commission and maintain accounts for them. So that New York, one of my arguments of my, the book I'm writing is that New York becomes this other place in the Cuban imaginary. It becomes this other place, right, that people refer to because, again, the Cuban aristocracy, the Cuban elite has all this money in New York, right, uh, and, they're, and they're moving that. So you can see why the Cuban presence becomes very important. And here you see it, right? These are the censuses. Place of birth of the Hispanic population of New York according to the U.S. decennial censuses. Right? Of course, I'm really talking about the Latin American population, right? Hispanic, then, you know, this time we're not really using the term Hispanic, right? But here you see what I've done in terms of the individual nationalities, and you see that specifically, right, after with the census of 1870, that is the high point, right, in the Cuban presence of the United States. And we're talking about the largest community of Latin Americans east of Mississippi, okay, in 1870. We're talking about 3,000 Cubans counted, enumerated, Right? living in New York City and the census of 1870. And the reason they are here is because they had to leave Cuba in 1869. A war breaks out. Starting on the 10th of October of 1868, the Spanish repression is considerable. Uh, you're either with them or against them, and a lot of that Cuban planter class, right? a lot of the Cuban planter class sees itself threatened. And of course, where do they go? They go where their money is. Right? So they go to New York. Right? And so. What I'm using to sort of put together this community, the primary sources that I'm using, are the decennial censuses. Yes, I'm sorry. I know it's all the uh, populations are declining. Is that due to people in the census identifying themselves as uh, Hispanic but being born in the United States? Uh, I'm sorry, are you referring to this one? Yes. Um, well, I think in this particular case, part of what happens, uh, it happens with all of the cases, but I, I think. I don't have a real good explanation for the other groups, which are an amalgam. But in the Cuban case, what happened is that the war was over in 1878, and a lot of people went back. So that was one one phenomenon. Okay. So the primary sources that I have are the decennial censuses, and the, and and I'm using the census tabulations, but I'm also using 
the ancestry, which I'll talk about a little bit later this afternoon, right? And, and we're not going to actually be using it, but ancestry.com, you can search for your relative, right? But you can also search, put in, dump for me everyone who said in place of birth, Cuba, or Havana, or Havana spelled in Savannah, you know, H A N N. Oh, you got to try all kinds of spelling, spelling combinations, right? And then if you enter that, it will actually dump you. Right? All of the census forms in which a Cuban appears. Right? And I had the good fortune of doing that while I had a fellowship at the New York Public Library, and they facilitated that for me, and I had a printer, and so I basically printed all of them, 1850, 1860, 1870, 1880, right? In terms of the, the, the forms, right? And so that actually, you know, the newspapers and magazines of the era, I'll show you some of that, naturalization records, which we'll see, vital records, right? uh, archives, right? all of these are, what I'm trying to do is put together this community, so city directories, New York City directories are, fa are fabulous, right? you can look at people. Right? The purpose of all this <clears throat> is to reconstruct the community as a social entity, because most of Cuban history deals with the New York community of, of Cubans right? as political actors. Right? Like they could be living anywhere, they're sort of suspended in a cloud, you know? they're not like living in an actual city. So my purpose is to not just see them as political actors, as Cuban history has, but to examine their presence in the city at the household level and put their feet on the sidewalks of New York. Right? By looking at them and see where they live, what kind of things can we learn about this community as we look at it as a community. So I'm actually approaching this not really as a historian, but again as a sociologist. I just happen to be going back right? and use, still using a census. Right? So for example, right? 1870, like I said, the, 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 the Cuban elites left, right? And here I found them all. All these people here on the left, <laughs> all of them on the left, right? These were the leading figures of what had been Cuban reformism. These were the people who owned plantations, every one of them. Enrique Piñero, Secretary of Human Legation, there's their occupation, right? Carlos del Castillo, Juan Manuel Macias, Francisco Fesser, a banker, the Cisneros brothers, Right, who organized expeditions to Cuba. They're all there, I continue, right? Jose Manuel Mestre, the leading lawyer for the ones who were starting to invest already in railroads and sugar. Look at, they're all living there. The Moras. The Moras brought, bought property right, on 12th and 13th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. Right? And they created an entire neighborhood there where they rented out to other Cubans. Okay? So that Jose Maria Mora, to me, who gave a lot of money, for these expeditions, everything is not just this guy, you know, up. He actually, I see him as a property owner, right? Cristóbal Malam, I'll talk about him in a minute. Miguel Aldama. Aldama was quite possibly the richest man in Cuba, right? And he becomes sort of a leader of this group, and that's his son in law, and that's another relative of his. Notice that they're all intermarried. Look at that guy's name, Alfonso Malam, it's the same as Malam. A lot of this are intermarried with each other, right? In fact, they're married cousins and all things like typical of a planter class. Miguel Aldama, here he is, on the cover of Harper's Weekly, right? as the head of the Cubans in New York, who were, of course, organizing uh, in terms of the war effort. There he is. More Cubans in New York. The, the Angaricas, right, who were Freemasons, right? uh, and who started a very important lodge here in New York. Right? Felix Govin became eventually the richest Cuban in New York, right? owning about a whole bunch of uh, rental properties of what is now Hell's Kitchen. Jose Morales Flemish. 
Antonio Bacieri Morales, an important Cuban intellectual figure who lived with his son-in-laws and daughters in Brooklyn. So I'm able to place these people. These aren't just you know Cubans who were here in New York. I'm able to put them on the street. Why is that important? Okay, let's talk about Cristóbal Mao. Cristóbal Mao is one of the earliest Cubans that I have coming in. He came in as a 14-year-old, around 1819 or so, right? When he was 14 to study law, right? Notice here, this is naturalization record. Notice the naturalization record, 1850. Notice his occupation. He is, of course, a dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is a transcription, right? And here is his 1850 census form. Right? Again, the enumerator goes through every household and jots down the households and then, you know, puts the information out. I've transcribed it for you. So here, you have, notice the spelling. It's Malin, but, of course, the enumerator, you know, he knows Madden, right? Because he's enumerating a lot of Irish in New York by this time, right? So he's got uh, his wife, Mary, his three children, uh, these four, actually, these four who are the children of his first wife, and these three who are the children of Mary. Why do I know this? Because I'm cross-checking this with Cuban genealogical records. <laughs> these are prominent families, so it's Cuban genealogists for this family, right? And all of these, by the way, are, as you can see, domestic servants. There's even a black female born in Cuba, right? Uh, uh, white female, et cetera. Why is this important? Let me just look at this record. Well, who's Mary Madden? Cristóbal Malin was actually leading annexationists at this time in 1850. It was an annexationist movement intended to annex Cuba to the U.S. And of course, the planter class was very interested in that. Imagine being part of the same country in which you're selling your sugar. Right? Besides, the Americans have figured this out about how to continue slavery without the slave trade. Right? So, essentially, right, uh, uh, he was a leading annexationist. And Mary Madden, is actually Mary O'Sullivan. You notice she's a New Yorker. She's younger than he is, right? And he's a New Yorker. He's not, she's not Cuban, in a sense, right? And his name is Mary. She is the sister of John L. O'Sullivan. Anybody know who that is? John L. O'Sullivan. Yes, go ahead. He's the guy who coins Manifest Destiny. So here you have a Cuban annexationist who's actually the brother-in-law of one of the leading expansionist figures of the period. Right? And how do you see that? Well, because you look at the census and you figure out who is this woman. Right? This woman is actually John O'Sullivan. So John O'Sullivan, working with his brother-in-law, here's the information about him, right? He was a client who coined, he actually coined Manifest Destiny in relation to the Oregon question. Right? Uh, but he is the brother-in-law of Cristobal Malik. And that's why John O'Sullivan, together with Moses Yellow Beach, right? uh, the editor of the New York uh, Banking out of the newspapers. One of those newspapers doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, went to Cuba to talk to the leading sugar planters about this annexation stuff, and then John O'Sullivan went to see President Polk, and Polk made an offer on Cuba to the Spanish to buy it and to annex it. All of this we see it at a household level. You see what I'm saying? You see it at a household level. Here's another interesting census uh, sheet. This is Jose Mora, who here appears as Joseph Mora, right? And his wife, Josephine, who is really Josefa. Right, and he's 38 and 37. Sugar commission merchant is his occupation. She keeps house. They have these children, right? And I want to just call to your attention this individual here. Frank Mora, right, is, and Joseph Mora, again, uh, was uh, one, of, one of those who came in 1869. 
Frank Mora, right, is, as you can see, 30 years old. He's a black male. He is a domestic servant, and he was born in Cuba. What do you think? Same last name as the family? Right? He's a domestic servant. He's black. He's a former house slave. In fact, probably a current house slave in post-Civil War New York. Right? So this is essentially, right, not only the immigration of these families, but the immigration in some cases of entire households. Right? And in some of these families, there are actually clearly, right, uh, what are essentially as slaves, say, public. There's also, by the way, Chinese Cubans who were also domestic servants in, uh, in Cuba who came with those families. So that's, again, another advantage of looking. I haven't really looked into that phenomenon, but that's a phenomenon that's important, right, for this. Here's the Moras in Greenwood Cemetery. The whole clan. These are the people who own the property on, uh, on uh, like I said, on 12th and 13th Street, right? And they're all buried in one place in Greenwood Cemetery. They did go back to Cuba. As you can see, they're in green. Okay. All right. Domingo de Gorguria, right? Here's another, here's a naturalization service. This guy was a hellraiser, right? He becomes a citizen in 1865. He is married to a Mora. So that's why he lives on 12th Street. You see? So you're putting him on the ground. But Domingo de Gorguria was a leading figure of that war. He leaves for Cuba in 1869 to lead a rebellion and is executed. In 1872 in Cuba, the Spanish catch him and they put him in the garrote, right? So they put a they put a they put a dead bolt a bolt, slowly turning it into the back of his neck until it breaks, right? Which was a public execution, right? Uh, you see him here become a citizen, and there he is. He said he wouldn't shave his beard until he saw Cuba independent. Well, he died with his beard on. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. The previous chief. Yeah. There's, there's nothing on here about race, but when the census taker goes, he identifies their race. Yes. You'll see that. Yeah. Oh, okay. You'll see that in a minute. Let me show you his his wife's and then future widows, uh, future widows uh, uh, census form. He's in Cuba. She's 39. Her name is Raquel Gorguria. She has her sons there, right? Notice that she has quite a few servants, right? So actually, Gorguria left New York a, a very wealthy businessman. She's got a whole bunch of servants in here, right? She's got, she's got more servants than her next door neighbor, who is Herman Melville. <laughs> because what happens is that when the census sheet dumps the sheet, it dumps the whole sheet. It doesn't just dump the Cubans. So sometimes you see interesting things. And of course, you know, clerk in a custom house, right? That was his day job, right? This is the 1870s, Herman Melville. Uh, so again, you, you, you figure this is Cuban woman, maybe she becomes a widow. I don't know, does she know Melville? You know, <laughs> you know stuff like that. Now, in case you just think we're dealing with elites, here's more of that. Here's, here's perhaps going to your question of race more. Uh, eventually, this war uh, led to the immigration of a lot of cigar workers, and also those included many of black cigar workers, right, who had, who many of their owners had in fact liberated them at the time of the war, right? I found that generally, right, generally, uh, uh, New York City was not, of course, racially segregated by neighborhoods, but it was racially segregated by boarding houses. At least. And remember, we're not talking about apartments at that time, we're talking about boarding houses. And the boarding houses were segregated. Here's uh, the boarding house of Miss Sarah Mann, 
who was born in Pennsylvania, and I use that I know it's her, and it's because I looked her up in the city directory. There's her entry in the city directory. Sarah Mann, widow of Samuel H., runs lodgings at 103 Lanrin Street. Lanrin is now West Broadway in the, in the Soho area, okay? Uh, and notice, if you look at that boarding house, and you can tell this is all one household because the number of the household is here. Look, everybody in that household is black. You see that? There's only three women, right? And they sew. You see that? Sewing, sewing, sewing. There are these three women here, right? But among the, the, among the black population, there's four Cubans, right? So one is a cigar maker, one's a waiter, and two are Coopers, right? Coopers. We know what that is, right? Coopers? Barrel makers, right? Barrel makers. Okay? So again, the, it, it's likely that, again, although you had a significant black Cuban population coming in, uh, in many ways, what, what happens is that you don't, um, you have segregation largely by, by race uh, in the boarding houses, right? Boarding houses tend to, there are, I found a few exceptions to that, right? The other thing that happens during this time is that the cigar population grows, you also have the growth, growth of what is called the cigar tenement house. And the cigar tenement house is a characteristic by which somebody owns this house in which they have cigar workers there and their families, and not only do they have, they, they, they rent out rooms to them, but they're also producing cigars there. They're rolling cigars. Because, believe it or not, New York, and well, it's not believe it or not, it's actually, we know this, right? <laughs> so I mean, New York was not only a major uh, uh, place for sugar refining, but it was also a major uh, center for cigar manufacturing. Right? If you look at the tobacco directories, of the 1870s and 1880s, it's like you couldn't throw a stone in downtown Manhattan without hitting some kind of cigar or tobacco-related establishment, right? And a lot of these were sold in the street. The, the tenement houses, of course, eventually were, you know, the, the Union Cigar Workers International Union, which is at the very core of the American labor movement, right? Uh, one of the earlier things was to eliminate the tenement houses because they were, you know, inherently sort of, you know. Uh, now, the war, and again, I've read in Cuban history all along that the war right, was organized a great deal in New York. That is, that essentially a lot of the supplies and things were you know, uh, taken to Cuba uh, 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 from New York. But it was like, okay, so where, I don't know, where did they get guns? Where did they get all that stuff? In terms of archives, there is this tremendous archive. So the study of Cubans in New York in the 19th century at the New York Public Library. And they're called the Moses Taylor Papers. Moses Taylor was one of the Moses Taylor and Company was one of the counting houses that was on South Street for many years. And Moses Taylor and Company made a lot of their money precisely on the Cuba trade and on having a relationship like with these Cuban planters. And and it was in business for about 50 years, right? And at the end of that, if you can imagine, all of the office files went to the New York Public Library. Right? So it's all there in terms of a record of all this conduct. And you realize that not only was Moses Taylor you know, selling on commission the sugar, right? but he was also essentially acting as an agent in many ways for the Cubans in New York and the Cubans from Cuba. Right? So for example, many other Cuban planters would send their children up here to be educated. Moses Taylor would wait for them on the dock, his people would wait for them on the dock, put them in a school in New Jersey or in the Hudson Valley, pay their tuition out of the accounts that they had, because he essentially was a banker for them, right? He would sell their sugar, keep accounts, buy machinery for them, 
A lot of the sugar mills in Cuba were run with machinery that was produced at the West Point Foundry in Cold Spring. Right? And there's records of all of that in the Moses Taylor Company. There's records of all the placement of these kids and the problem with these kids, you know, because they want more money, they're supposed to get an allowance, or you didn't send me enough money, and I need to buy boots, and all of that correspondence is in there, right? And also, eventually, when they came because of the war, as I just showed you, in 1869, 1870, Moses Taylor also held accounts, right, for the rebel armies and so forth, accounts, to buy things here. And among those was ammunition and all kinds of things. So here's Charles Pond, Mr. Charles Pond. He is at 179 Broadway, which is like next to City Hall, right? And as you can see, he carries Remington's breech loading arms, Winchester repeating arms. He has muskets, he has rifles, and his customer is Manuel, Mr. Manuel Quesada, who happens to be General Manuel Quesada, the head commander in chief of the Cuban forces in Cuba, right? for a while, and so he comes to New York, well, to buy guns, so he just, does he, does he go for some sort of underground ground, ground you know, arms dealer in, in Civil War, pro-Civil War New York? No, he just walks into Mr. Pond's, uh, um, and here's the receipt in the Moses Taylor papers, 2,000 Enfield rifles, 2,000 whatever those cartridges, whatever, Remington carbines, uh, Springfield muskets, Remington pistols, and I go on, uh, saddles, machetes, 2,000 whatever, Remington, two carbines, one, two Gatling cannons, okay? All of this from a guy who has a store at 179 Broadway, right? <laughs> and uh, we assume that that stuff went to Cuba. Right? And you can imagine, right, and one of the running battles that's also there, and it's also, by the way, in many of the archives in Washington, right, many of the archives in Washington, is the fact that, uh, 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 that the Spanish consul in New York and the Spanish ambassador in Washington were like, right? I mean, you're buying things here in New York, right, to send to Cuba, right, and you're allowing these people to do that, right? The answer from Hamilton Fish, for example, former New York governor and senator, right, who was then Grant's secretary of state, was, you know, they, they can buy this, right? If we catch them sending it to Cuba, then, you know, we'll do so, which happened a moment in time, which is a violation of neutrality law, right? But here we go, right? They were just buying all this stuff up, you know, and sending it to, uh, Sending it to Cuba. There it's signed, whatever, and presumably the money was in Moses Taylor's account. It was paid out because there's a receipt. Okay, so this is, I'm not giving the whole history here. I'm just talking, I'm just showing you how some of this primary documents and maybe looking at this history through this, through this lens enables you to basically place that history on the sidewalk, right? Literally, right? Allows you to say, this was a community. And people went out and, and bought guns, and, and people went out and bought books. There was another one, Tony Bachiri Morales set up a bookstore. He didn't know anything else. You know, he was at the University of Havana professor, so he set up a Spanish language <laughs> bookstore on Union Square. Right? Yes? I said it was a violation of what? The neutrality law, right? The U.S. had a neutrality law that said you cannot be, you know, uh, plotting whatever against another government from the U.S. And this was a problem for Cuban exiles here all along, because essentially if the U.S. would catch uh, a shipment of arms going out, and sometimes that happened in New York Harbor, it happened in Florida sometimes that they would catch, and sometimes they would find out about it because the Spanish government had hired the Pinkertons, right? And they hired the Pinkertons to spy on the Cubans, right? So sometimes they knew about it. There's actually a book that came out of Cuba recently about how one Cuban and how one Pinkerton was a double agent, 
That is, he was selling information to the Spanish government, but he was also getting money from the Cubans to give them the information he was giving the Spanish. And there's records of that. Right? An, an entire area where, there has, where we want to do research on this, uh, by the way, is in the Spanish Foreign Ministry Office. Right? We have records of all of this, and the receipts paid out to Pinkerton you know, for their spying work on Cubans in the Gulf. Okay? So I just, that's just, I mean, I'm writing a whole book on this, so, so you can imagine, I'm finished with it, so you can imagine that I have a lot more. Now let's move into the 20th century, right? Let's move into the 20th century. Cuban migration to the US tapers off quite a bit. There is quite a bit of migration to the US after World War II, right? And in fact, the Cuban community in New York uh, grew significantly in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Right? This is the world that Oscar Iguelos wrote about in Mambo Kings and wrote about in Our House in Last World, the, the author that just died recently here in New York, Oscar Iguelos, because he was part of that migration right, to New York from Cuba. Right? He was actually born in New York. His parents came out of them. So in the 1940s and 1950s, there was actually a significant migration that came, went not to Miami. Because who wanted to go to Miami in the 1940s? I mean, especially if you were an immigrant looking for a job, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know. Uh, so they came to New York. But everything, of course, changes, right? And here you have, uh, I couldn't bring that up to date, although I did 2010. Cubans arriving in the United States, 1959 to 2010, right? This, of course, look at the figures here, right? This is not my 3,000 I'm dealing with in New York, right? In the 1870s. We're talking about significantly larger numbers. And of course, what leads up to this and why this is the case is that you have the Cuban Revolution, 1959. You have the disaffection right, of significant <laughs> sectors of Cuban society with both the pervasiveness and the scope and the character of change in Cuba. Right? So that at various times since 1959, particularly since 1960, you've had these different waves. What I want to say, I'll go back to the graph, but what I want to say, what I call this, the way I, what I call this migration trend, and I'll go through it, is what I call the Cold War fossil. Right? Because this isn't a migration stream. This isn't like you say, okay, this is the way Mexican migration is to us, where you, know, you can sort of chart it and it probably increases at one time, goes down, and so. No, this is a faucet right? that gets turned on and off. Right? And the considerations why, why it gets turned on and why it gets turned off right, have to do with decisions that are made in Havana and in Washington. Right? So you have the first wave, right, which was basically from 1959, but really 1960, up until 1962. <coughs> the missile crisis, right? October of 1962 ends that regular traffic. The Bay, even the Bay of Pace didn't, didn't, didn't end that traffic. Uh, you had regularly scheduled flights from Havana uh, to Miami, right, up until October 1962, despite the Bay of Pigs, despite the breaking of diplomatic relations in January of 1961, right? So what we're seeing in this period of 1960, 61, 62, <coughs> is an increasingly hostile relationship, right, between the United States and Cuba, in which no one thought, right, that the Cuban Revolution was going to survive in terms of the efforts by the United States, in fact, to overthrow the government, right? So you have that first wave where disproportionately you have the elements of Cuban society that are going to be disaffected by a transition essentially to a socialist regime. Not, not exclusively. Right? Sometimes this character of the, of the migration early has been overgeneralized. But there's no question about the fact that, that you, 
you can take the entire, for example, and I have it, Havana Social, Havana Social Register, right, of the elites in Havana. And so there was a disproportionate representation of elements who felt threatened essentially by what the socialist revolution was going to do, which is basically an entire redistribution in the sense of wealth, and which eventually was right. Uh, there is then the, there's, the faucet is closed. During that period, they, all these Cubans are arriving because the US, in the context of that conflict, says, we want Cubans to leave. We want to demonstrate to the world that that revolution is not popular. Of course, that wasn't really a good conclusion, right? Because they weren't necessarily representative of the Cuban society. But we want, we want people to leave. We want the world to show disaffection with a revolution that we don't want to succeed, right? Besides, these people are primarily white. They were primarily professional. They were primarily upper class. It was easy, right, to say, yeah, we want these Cubans, right? So they gave essentially a refugee visa. Now, these didn't come under any sort of immigration provision. They came under a refugee visa. I arrived in October 29th, I'll never forget it, 1960 with my parents, right? And I had my Cuban passport. I had a tourist visa, right? I had a tourist visa. And I entered uh, the U.S. I entered the U.S. Uh, as a tourist, and then when I arrived here, I was given a refugee visa. You didn't have to make a case for being a refugee. If you were leaving from Cuba, anyone leaving from Cuba was assumed to be a refugee. So you didn't have to make a case for it. Yes? Just real quick, the refugee visa, any support with that? Any financial support? Yes, there were, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but part of that was that also in 1961, the U.S. set up the Cuban Refugee Program, which was a program that did things, provided assistance to Cuban the Cuban refugees coming in, and also tried to resettle them away from Miami. Because Claude Pepper and Dante Fussell, before they had Cuban constituents later on, said, oh, I can't take all these Cubans here. So there was a Cuban refugee resettlement program that spread out Cubans all over the place. Okay, so it was, it was an assisted migration. It was an encouraged migration, and it was an assisted migration. Okay? And then uh, almost no one is coming in in this period. Right? Almost no one's coming in this period because you had to do so through third countries. There was no direct flights. People, some people coming in rafts, some people going through Spain, you know, and other places, Mexico, trying to get in. Then the pressures build up in Cuba. Right? The Cuban government says, okay, if you want to leave, you can leave. We're going to open up a port. Right? And that was in 1964, 1964. Right? And the Cuban government said, and, and they said, you can leave. Right? Just you know, get on a boat and leave. And the U.S. The Johnson administration said, no, 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 let's not do it this way. Let's set up an airlift, literally an airlift. Twice a day flights, right? Six days a week. It was first done by Eastern Airlines that had the contract, right? And then later it was a company called Airlift. The, comp the, the, the crew would wake up in Miami in the morning, right? Get on the, get on the plane, go to Miami, pick up the, whatever passengers the Cuban government had lined up through whatever selection process they had, right? They came on, they dropped them off in a tarmac in, uh, in Miami International to be processed, right? Had lunch, went back to Cuba and picked up another load, right? We're talking in this first wave, in this first wave, about 260,000. The airlift rested largely from 1965 until 1973, and it brought in about 325,000 Cubans. So essentially an assisted migration process. This is what I'm talking about. This is I'm talking about migration policy here, a special relationship, right? Migration policy that is tied completely to foreign policy. Right? This was in service of US policy with respect to, essentially, it was part of a, the entire conflict with 
with Cuba at this time. And it was a Cold War conflict, which is why I call it the Cold War fossil. Yes? So who was able to access it? Was it, was it considered to be a new leaf? And why did Cuba plateau and it was a very long. It was a very long period. So at the beginning, maybe there were elites. A lot of these people also were very elderly, right? Because many of their uh, many of their adult children had left with their children, and the older people didn't want to leave back in the 1960s. And they said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna ride it out, right?" But by 1965, 66, they said, "No, it's not gonna change." Besides, the Cuban government gave priority to the elderly. Right? In other words, this was a system in which largely, although the, the, the names and so forth and everything were sent ahead to the U.S., the selection process was done by the Cuban government. Right? So they favored the elderly. Right? Uh, and by the way, no males of military age. <laughs> so this was a very atypical migration. I remember I was, I was a student at, at the University of Miami at the time. I used to take the Palmetto Expressway North. And you see the flight coming in, right? And sometimes you see in the paper there were actually lines of wheelchairs. So, you know, elderly, elderly, particularly females, elderly and females are not your typical international migrants. You know what I'm saying? But it was, again, this entire situation is insolita. Unbelievable. Insolita, right? It's like it's like off. It's it's like unheard of, right? So so the the way this wave by mutual agreement ends, it tapered off. Your question though was um, you had another question. Oh, which, why would, uh, so it sounds like you're sort of answering it. My question was why does Cuba agree? Because the, the Cuban government has always wanted an, er, an elderly escape, an elderly, an orderly escape plan, right? Realizing that, that that at different times various sectors of the Cuban population will be discontent. I think the Cuban government has always said. We, we favor, essentially, an orderly departure. The, for them, the airlift is the, the model for this departure, right? Because what would come later would be that the U.S., right? The U.S. would limit the, uh, all, uh, the people that would be le leaving here. And again, keep in mind that not only does the, does the U.S. was not accepting, there were no flights coming at the time, but also the Cuban government keeps people from leaving. What's the population of Cuba as 325,000? No, th not 325,000, no? Okay, three hundred twenty-five. yeah, the population of Cuba at this time is about 10 million. Cool. Believe it or not, Cuba's about the size of Venezuela's population, for example. It's a big island. But so right now, the Cuban population is about 11 million and dropping. Because they have extremely low births and death rates. They have, they have no growth for birth and death rates, and yet you have these people leaving. So the population is hitting the skids, right? So anyway, in 1980, Three events that I already know. I made a documentary about this with my son. It's a very dramatic moment. There's a lot of pressure for people to leave. Some Cubans break into the uh, Peruvian embassy to try to get out. And the Cuban government says, we opened the Fort of Mariel, right? And that was the Mariel boat lift, which occurred within a nine-month period. Some of you may remember it. In 1980, it was absolutely chaotic, right? There was no control over it. And largely, the Cubans were supposed to be controlling it. But people got on the boats that weren't supposed to get on there. And then there were some people that the Cuban government put on the boats. Right, that to give that whole migration a disfavorable sort of, you know, yeah, they, there were people from insane asylums and from penal institutions where that were put on them by the Cuban government, right? That was overplayed. To this day, about 125,000 people left, and yet maybe only about 3,000 at the most were deemed uh, non-entrants by the U.S. government. That is, that they didn't want them in, and they should be returned. But of course, they couldn't be returned. Right? <laughs> so so about 3,000 out of the 125,000. So although, although the migration had that reputation, 
right? It actually was overvote because of the, you know, because of the, of the kind of publicity it received, and it did increase the crime rate in Miami. And this became, this became really a, it, it was a period of tremendous upheaval in Miami. After that, uh, the U.S. and Cuba agreed to a migration agreement by which the U.S. would admit up to 20,000 Cubans a year. That was up to. Of course, up to could be three. Right? It didn't have to be 20,000. So the U.S. still was not admitting, right? Keep in mind that ni 1980, the boat lift, right? Kind of wore out the welcome mat for Cubans <laughs> because you weren't, good, you weren't getting any more of these white professional whatever. Some of them were non-white, some of them appeared to be, you know, uh, crazy and criminal and so forth. So the welcome war man wore a little, a little thin, right? And you've got to keep in mind that Bill Clinton loses his re-election as governor of Arkansas because, in fact, they did put a camp in Fort Chaffee in Arkansas, right? And and everything else. And this was a, you know, this was an event that people said, we don't want any more Cubans in here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, well, you said the crime rate kind of huge. It, it, maybe I can get yeah. some more information later, but you just mentioned it, but I'd be interested in knowing what kind of crime, because it could be that people, you know, how people perceive, yeah. the yeah. police have a lot right. of discretion on right. as to whether or not they're going to Right, right. But, the, but I mean, there were all the other things going on in the Miami in the 1980s. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so it wasn't just that, but that was sort of the perception, right? Let me, let me speed along. So let me say thing about the Cold War faucet. Distinct migration waves in response to policy decisions. I'm sorry, I didn't finish this. Uh, so, 1994, the same thing happens as happened over here. People want to leave, right? The Cuban government essentially opens, opens a port, right? Uh, not, doesn't open a port, says, okay, let's not do what we did before of opening a port. If you can make a boat, leave. <laughs> if you can make a boat, you can leave. And so people, because before you had to evade the, the Cuban Coast Guard or whatever, get in. Now you can just make a boat, Put it, you know, on you know, a styrofoam, whatever, all kinds of things. People did this openly and went out. This was for several months, for a few months in 1994, right? And as a result of that, right? And as a result of that, people started leaving in these makeshift boats. Right? Bill Clinton is president. He says, "Ah, not, we're not going to have this deal again." So he intercepts them in the high seas and he puts them in the Guantanamo naval base, right? The reason for the Guantanamo Naval Base, we'll see a little bit later, right? But eventually, right, they were admitted into the U.S. And so as a result of that, right, as a result of that, the, the U.S. government went back to the negotiating table with the Cubans and said, we want you, you know, we, I know we've been criticizing you all along for not letting people leave your country, but now we want you to stop people from leaving your country. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, don't want, we don't want these people leaving, right? Do something, right? Stop them. So there's been a migration agreement that was reached out in the Oak Room of the Plaza Hotel, between Ricardo Alarcón and Anthony Lake, the National Security Council, which had a migration agreement. That migration agreement said, right, the U.S. will take back, right, the U.S. will, will the Cuban government will take back any Cubans intercepted at sea, we said back. And we'll see why that is a special deal, okay? All right, so let's go here, right? The state migration waves in response to power decisions in Havana and Washington. That's what I've been talking about. The exceptional character of U.S. migration policy towards Cuba. The Cuban Adjustment Act, which I haven't mentioned, was passed in 1966. So all these people came in with refugee visas, my family included, right? A refugee visa is supposed to be temporary. And supposed to be, you're supposed to, when things change in your home country, you're supposed to go back. Of course, things didn't change. 
So by 1966, you have all these Cubans with refugee visas with no path to citizenship or to stay. So Congress passes a law that says if you're a Cuban in the US, right, you can apply for permanent residence after a year of being in the US. Okay, which at the end was very special treatment, right? And so, you know, my family, you know, we went to immigration naturalization, we showed our whatever, and we got a green card. And within two and a half years, they, they gave you credit. There was a five-year city, you could become a citizen. That was the Cuban adjustment. It was adjusted because it was meant to adjust the status of Cubans from refugees, right, to permanent, permanent residents in the US. The law was written in such a way, though, that said if you're a Cuban, right, if you're a Cuban uh, and you're in the US, you're entitled to stay. Of course, you know, we still investigate you when you put in the application. Criminal, but you get to stay. That law is still in effect. This was done for the Hungarians in 1956. Yes, it was done for the Vietnamese, right? But for the Cubans, it's still there. Go ahead. This is just out of curiosity. In the 90s, when Cuban migrants were returned, yes. so we stopped right. by the uh, U.S. government. Right. Was the U.S. government accused of being racist? If I remember correctly, many of the Cubans were coming were actually some, as a part of a special deal, were part of the Mariel non-entrance, which meant the US said, you can't, you're in the United States, but you have an entrance, right? And so in the deal with the Cuban government, there was a period in which about 800 of those were sent back to Cuba. And disproportionately, they were not white, right? That was during that period. The rafters that come in later, the number of non-whites is not as large in that group. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not aware of the racial dimension of that at that time, but in, in, as in the 90s, when you had the return of some of the Mariel non-entrants, whom I've run into in Cuba, by the way. I've gone to Cuba, some people come up and say, you know, I was in Fort Chaffee, and, and later I was in Atlanta, and they brought me back here, you know, and, you know. Uh, many of that, many, disproportionately, those numbers were, were not white. And they were taken literally in, in, you know, bound on the plane and taken back, right? Uh, so that, that is the case. Now, the Cuban Adjustment Act continues in effect. And here's why then the deal in 1994 was this. The deal was that the U.S. Said, the US sat down with uh, the, Cuban, uh, the Cuban government and said, uh, like I said uh, initially at the Oak Room in the Plaza Hotel uh, with the Cuban Foreign Minister, and said, we want you to stop this migration. Okay? In return, right? In return, right, uh, we will agree to at least 20,000 Cubans leaving a year through a normal process. Right? But then you also have to take back the people that we catch in the high seas. Why? Because the Cuban Adjustment Act was still in effect. If the Coast Guard stopped a rafter out there in the Florida Strait, right, they'd send a Coast Guard boat, right, and then eventually they would be sent back to Cuba. But if that rafter arrived, on Cuba, on, on, in U.S., I'm sorry, in Crandon Park, in Key, in Key West, in Miami Beach, and put their foot on dry ground, they were subject to the Cuban refugee adjustment. 
and that's the wet foot, dry foot. And you had even scenes of a boat coming near the Florida coast, some people swimming to shore, getting on there, getting in, right? And the people on the boat being sent back. You had the case also, by the way, the Cuban Adjustment Act also meant that sometimes when there would be large boats of Haitians, this was the racial discrimination talking about, when there were large boats of Haitians, right, that were approaching Florida, right, and if they ran into a Cuban raptor out there in the raft and they picked him up, right, when they, if, when they arrived in Miami and if the Coast Guard was waiting for them, they would pick out the Cuban and admit him and send the boat of Haitians back, right? That's the, that's the artifice, right, of the Cuban Adjustment Act. So right now what you have is this situation, right, in which you have a fourth wave, one, two, three, four, that has been going on since 1995, in which the U.S. is admitting at least 20,000 Cubans a year through a normal migration process through the Cuban interest section in Havana, in which those applications are processed, right? There's been a decline in clandestine migration, but the clandestine migration that exists are people with power boats. Because you see, now you have to, you, you can't just get on a raft and catch the Gulf Stream and then have the Coast Guard pick you up because the Coast Guard picks you up and gets it back. You have to now hire somebody like El Duque Hernandez did, right? The, the Yankees pitcher, and it was Duque, right? That's what Duque did. With his Yankees money, he hired somebody, somebody to go pick up. He, he hired somebody to go in a speedboat and pick up his family. And what those speedboat people do is that they, you know, pick up people in the dead of night, speed in, and as they're being chased by the Coast Guard, they drop them off. <laughs> they drop them off in Miami Beach or wherever it is. And those people don't have to hide. Those people just show up at the Broward Sheriff's Office or at the Day County Sheriff's Office and say, I'm here, I'm Cuban. Right? Because they would then be said they're dry for them and subject to Cuban adjustment. That is, if that is bizarre, right? Uh, think about uh, what uh, essentially, when you have migration policy, in a sense, driven by foreign policy, right? And the only thing that's different now, by the way, as of one year ago, right, is that in January, exactly a year ago, the Cuban government passed a law that said that people who leave Cuba, this was true for the first time ever since 1959, people who leave Cuba, can continue to have their passport valid for two years, which means that Cuba has eliminated something that existed since 1959, which was called la salida definitiva. That is the definitive departure, right? When you left Cuba in 1959, 1960, 1970, you left, as far as the Cuban government was concerned, out, right? You might apply for a Cuban passport, you might be able to go back and visit, but now people who leave Cuba retain their passport for two years and it is renewable. Right? So, which means that Cuba has normalized, essentially, its migration. It continues to be against the Cuban Adjustment Act because they argue the Cuban Adjustment Act incentivates, right? Puts incentives on, a, on migration. It gives, it gives people, all those people who left on the rafts in 1994, they knew that when they were going to get picked up, right, they were going to be processed. Right? That's why Bill Clinton sends them to Guantanamo. Right? Which, of course, is a naval base out of the deal, right? That presumably, a group of Cuban American lawyers went to federal court, by the way, and said the people in Guantanamo are allowed to go into the U.S. because the Guantanamo is part of the U.S. And a federal judge said no, Guantanamo was rented properly, which of course, which of course it is, right? And which the U.S. pays rent every year, and which the Cubans do not cash the checks. 
Right. Right? Okay. All right. Okay, let's open it up for questions. All right, go ahead. You mean starting in 1960? Um, no, um, starting in 1980. Well, not, not 1980, but just starting in 1996. Well, first of all, the Human Refugee Adjustment Act was into, in effect, right? Right. So, so that, that the Adjustment Act meant that, again, if you picked up Cubans out there and uh, for humanitarian reasons, right, you you weren't going, you couldn't return them. You had to send them somewhere. You had to admit them, right? I mean, it wasn't possible for the U.S. to say at that point. Okay, we're going to take these rafts and not pick up anybody, and we're going to put and we're going to put police in the docks at Key West to keep them from landing. Right? In fact, Long Child, the governor of Florida, threatened to do that, right? Because he wanted federal action to keep the people coming to Florida, right? And he was and he almost and he almost did a federal state confrontation that day, right? Mm -hmm. On that, and that's why part of why Janet Reno and Bill Clinton essentially changed their policy towards letting people there. So they picked them up and they sent them to Long Right. Uh, all I can tell you is that, that there is there has been that special relationship that in many ways people leaving Cuba are perhaps to this day right seen as individuals who are fleeing communists, even though the realities are in many ways very different. Okay? Uh, but in fact, there is the law, and the law says if they're here, they have to be admitted. And I think part of it was, for example, Elian Gonzalez, right, in two thousand, right, he was actually a wet foot. Right? That is, he was, he was picked up in the high seas, but he was floating and there were dolphins around him and the angels, <laughs> and the angels were with him. So there was a humanitarian, you know, essentially the idea was just bring him. The mistake that INS and S at that time makes with Elian is not that they pick him up and bring him in, is that they turn him over to whoever showed up at the detention center. Right? In other words, they, you know, oh, we're, we're his family in Miami. You know, uh, oh, okay, go, here's the kid. Right? And that was the beginning of that problem. Okay, of that issue. I was living in Miami at the time. Uh, that, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Hi, do you have, uh, thank you very much for that. Do you have any uh, sources about research that follows up on the Mariel, on the Marielitos, because of that group that went to yeah. Peru and was literally stuck, right. and right. many right. of them are stuck yeah. in, in Lima, not always wanted to go back to Miami. And it's in what impact that has on the on Cuban identity as a community, because I remember, I, I imagine that that's a, a moment where they realize who they want to be and who they don't. And right. issues of race and class are very clear well, separating the yeah. Cuban community. Yeah, I ha I've dealt here with migration only. I haven't really talked about any issues of adjustment or the US or anything else like that. Um, uh, I, um, I, you know, one of the things that I have argued, I have an article with a colleague entitled There Are Cubans and There Are Cubans and There Are Cubans. Right. In the sense that so part of the argument is that these four ways have such different contexts of departure and such different contexts of reception that it's very hard to generalize about Cubans in the U.S. unless the major independent variable is wave of arrival, okay? And Mariel, unfortunately, was one of the ones, and we saw this early uh, in a project that I did with Alejandro Portes Rolando Rumbao called the Children of Immigrants Longitudinal Study, in which we interviewed right, uh, eighth and ninth graders of different nationalities in both uh, uh, Miami and San Diego. I did the interviewing in Miami. 
way back in the 90s, uh, uh, in the late 90s. And uh, there were about 3,000 Cuban children in the sample, a very large sample. Uh, and part of what we saw was that, in fact, on terms of educational achievement, educational aspirations, grade point average, dropping out, the Mariel children were very different, right, from the other Cuban children with respect to all of this. Alejandro Porto, in fact, was in Princeton, came two weeks ago, three weeks ago, here to the Graduate Center, to Steve Justin Builder Center, and he gave a presentation in which his research shows, right, that there is an increasing bifurcation of Cubans in the United States. That is, on the one hand, uh, particularly the early ones and so forth, and who've had access and who have certain privilege in, in Miami have done very well, and that there's a creation, believe it or not, of a Cuban underclass in Miami. That characterized by all the things that we attribute to the underclass in terms of school achievement and everything else. Right? And it shows very clearly the data on this, right? On this sort of bifurcation of that. So that whenever somebody asks, what about the Cubans? Or which Cubans are you talking about? You know, there's this increasingly a kind of this, this I mean, this is a migration that's gone on for 50 years, right? And it's had very distinct, you know, uh, context of departure, context of reception for each of those waves. Right? It becomes very, very sort of difficult to generalize it. Right? I had a, uh, I had a uh, call the other day from the Miami Herald about this book by Amy Chua and the other guy on the issue of, right, the, the and they mentioned the success of Cubans. Right? And I said, well, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Uh, that's a much more complicated picture. Yes, go ahead. You mentioned that this legislation from a year ago allows yeah. Their passport package yeah. here. There's a family I just met recently. They just came a month ago. I yeah. was a student at our college. Uh, um, his family's mother and his uh, brother and mm -hmm. father. They came by way of Mexico right. um, because father was working in Mexico right. and they traveled right. back and forth. Uh, right. And finally, they ended up right. just. You could cross over from Mexico and show up and say, I'm here. Right. So they right. crossed the border and into Texas. Right. And, um, and as you know, they're getting the status of, of being refugees. But they mentioned that if they were to return, they would be arrested. So I'm wondering, what are the repercussions for someone to leave and then to return? Are they really seen as, you know, oh, come back, no problem? Or do you have well, to that may be specific to that group in the sense that, that or that family, in the sense that who, who knows if maybe they had to leave because they had some sort of antecedentes of some sort of, you know, uh, History or record in Cuba, well, which is that went well, back. He was, working, he was working in Mexico. Yeah. And so maybe there No, I, the, the, the experience is that the Cuban government has totally changed its policy with respect to people who've left. And if you have been gone, I think, for a certain period of time, you can certainly go back. And now with this new law, you can literally go back anytime. <laughs> What's interesting about this is that many of the uh, sort of, which are of the, um, uh, uh, hardline Cuban-American congressmen and senators who've been in favor of the Cuban Adjustment Act, because the Cuban Adjustment Act sends Cubans apart presumably as political exiles, right? So they want to go and kept. But now that Cuba, that people who are leaving can go back, right, free. And I went, last time I was back in January of 2012, very different from when I went, first went back in 1979. When I went back in 1979, people were going back to help their family, but they were all conflicted about, no, this was a party going back. There are, there are, there are, there are uh, children who are going to celebrate their birthdays in Cuba. There are quinceañeras going to Cuba to celebrate their birthdays. I mean, this has become, I mean, despite all this, it's become almost a normal flow 
The flight from Miami is 20 minutes, wheels up, wheels down. 20 minutes, okay? And there are like, uh, on some days there's tw 10 flights, right? The U.S. allows, well it doesn't allow, it does allow Cubans who have family in Cuba to travel. And the Cuban government allows them in and they enter with a Cuban passport, okay? And so because of that, there's been this, this greater movement of people, right, in which, um, in which the, some of the legislators said, well, obviously these people are not refugees, are they? I mean, if they can go back, <laughs> maybe we should eliminate the Cuban Adjustment Act. And, and my response was, yes, we probably should eliminate the Cuban Adjustment Act, but the mistake in the reasoning is believing that the Cuban Adjustment Act was ever a, a, a notion for admitting refugees. That is, the Cuban Adjustment Act did not ask anyone arriving whether they were refugees, just whether they were Cuban, <laughs> right? In other words, if you were Cuban, you were in. So if there was never, you never had to demonstrate that you were a refugee in order to qualify for the Cuban Adjustment Act. So what's, you know, right? yeah, so what's new, you see? It was never that kind of policy, and probably, even though I, it's hard for me to say that because you know, my family benefited from it, whatever, but probably the conditions have changed such that yes, probably the Cuban Adjustment Act ought to be you know, uh, done away with, like it was for the Vietnamese and it was for the uh, Hungarians. Right? Just one last, I, I'm a bit told where. No, okay. Okay, Be just quick. Um, real quick in terms of immigration policy, because immigration policy in the United States is always influenced by U.S. relations right. with the mm -hmm. country. Right. Is the, potentially the policy, because it was the Soviet Union in the United States who initiated the conflict, right. but uh, it, when I'm thinking about the, the French friction and all the mm -hmm. developments that have happened since 1959, it seems like it's more of the fact that you have a U.S. Uh, the influence of certain Cubans on Washington policy, um, and the I'm looking at my hand right, and the fact that the United States has not been able to take out Castro seems to be more of the issue. Well, the elephant in the room. It's just yes, the Cuban this migration policy is frozen in the Cold War, but so is overall U.S. policy towards Cuba, right? In the sense that there's still no diplomatic relations, and and you know. Uh, and the, my, my, and I have something coming out on this uh, in, in a few weeks. Uh, there's just not been any political reason, right, for a U.S. president, right? There's, there's, there's no really no uh, good political reason why changing relations with Cuba, right? That's just it's it's it's, uh, it's one of those questions where there is no uh, reason really to do so, despite the pressures of some groups and so forth. And on the other hand, you've got committed Cuban American legislatures in Congress, including. Bob Menendez in New Jersey, who's a Democrat, by the way, right, and uh, and several members of the delegation who probably would raise, you know, and there's always been this expectation about second-term Democratic presidents changing policy, right? Yeah. I'm a pessimist on that. Anyway, that's that way be, be, uh, beyond my time.